Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning, and I'd ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 will be our text today. Today, in our section of Scripture that we'll be examining, we see Paul listing several characteristics of what the Lord's bondservant looks like. And just by way of uh, uh, illustration, one of the things that he mentions is patient when wrong. I think a lot of us probably just struggle with patience in general, but patience when wronged, that's, that's a tough one. I was reminded of a missionary from England, John Selwyn. He went to the South Pacific in the 1870s. Well, while he was in university, before he went, he became a, a good boxer and, and a fighter, and he was a strong man. Well, during his time in the South Pacific, he had occasion to strongly rebuke a native uh, for something that he had done, and the native just smacked him upside the face. And he was expecting, knowing that he, that he could have floored him, he was expecting to get hit back, but instead the missionary just looked at him in the eyes. The native fled into the jungle. He was too ashamed to face the missionary. And a couple years later, when the missionary, John, had to uh, return back to England due to illness, that same native was saved and baptized under John Selwyn's replacement. And when asked what name, and this is common in native lands, what new name do you wish to be called now that you are a Christian? And he says, I want to be called John Selwyn because it is he who taught me what Christ is like. And that's one of this, one of the many things that we'll be looking at today, to be patient when wronged. And isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in all of his sufferings? Patience is not something that is passive. On the contrary, it is active, concentrated strength. So let's look at the text. And I'm going to actually go back and read verse 14 to 26. I'm going to read the uh, 14 to 19 was the substance of our message a few weeks back. And then uh, 20 to 26 is our text. But I want to get that fuller context uh, for all of us. So follow along as I read. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but there are also vessels of wood and earthenware some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they will only produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for all of life and everything that we need. And we pray, O God, that you would make it plain before us this day as those who claim to be Christians, as those who desire to be servants fit for the master's use. Lord, we want to know what these descriptions are. We want to know the things we are to avoid and the things that we should become. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make things clear to each one here this day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Timothy. And just to give a a brief review for some of you who haven't been here, um, some of you visitors, especially first time, Paul is in a prison cell awaiting martyrdom. He's about to die for his faith. Young Timothy, he's been working with for perhaps 15 years or so. He's writing the pastoral letters, and and really it's like Paul's last will and testament. What is so vitally important that he wants to communicate to Timothy, who will then take the reins in the place of the Apostle Paul? And as we've discovered, as we've gone through this, it is the gospel. It is the content of the gospel, to guard the gospel, to protect the gospel, to cherish the gospel, to then take this gospel and entrust it to faithful men who will then train others and so forth and so on. And that is Paul's great burden. And he, he wants to see the gospel continued in its purity he said, as I just read last time, that we, as, as, as servants of God, must be diligent to present ourselves approved unto God, verse 15, as a workman who need not be ashamed. The word he uses there communicates an earnest, energetic effort to present ourselves. In other words, we are to not be given to sloth, but be hard workers in what God has called us to do. And then today, really, what Paul does in verses 21 and 20 and 21 is give an illustration, an illustration about these vessels, vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor, okay? He's giving an illustration there, comparing those, as we'll see, to the various teachers and false teachers that have been present with Timothy. And then verses 22 to 26, to round out our text, he's warning them about the sinful lust and desires to avoid controversy, that is foolish controversy, controversy that produces quarrels, and then to see exactly what the Lord's bondservant is to look like. Those character traits, those brush marks, as it were, to use an artist uh, imagery of, of painting a picture of what the Lord's bondservant looks like, and Paul applies the brush strokes of faith and love and gentleness, and patient when wronged, and all of these things, but one who is also resolute and firm about protecting the content of the gospel, but will not be given to foolish controversies, okay? And so there's a, there's a fine balance to be struck here. So we're going to consider this under three heads, and each point begins with the Lord's servant. Uh, the Lord's servant, first of all, is, on, is an honorable vessel, useful to the master. <coughs> Secondly, Lord's servant pursues righteousness. And thirdly, 
Lord's servant is gentle in teaching and correction. So first of all, verse 20 and 21, the Lord's servant is an honorable vessel useful to the master. Now, of course, this isn't, I mean, it's very much connected to the previous context. That's why I wanted to read that. He had just talked about these false teachers, men who had claimed that the resurrection had already happened, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And so he's giving the illustration here of these, a large house, Timothy, there are not only the gold and silver vessels, but there's the everyday vessels, the baked clay pots and the wooden vessels that are used every day and, and sometimes are actually just thrown out. But there's also the gold and silver in a large house. Some are used for honor and some for dishonor. Those who have gone astray from the faith, as he said in the previous section, are obviously those who are given to dishonor. Now, why does he say a large house in this illustration? He's painting a picture here that it's not the everyday house. Uh, uh, Brian Ott's a poor, well, that's not a good example. Brian's got a lot of nice stuff, but he's got a, he's got a nice one-bedroom condo. He may not have gold and silver dishes and then everyday dishes. When I visit him, he serves me something on a regular dish. I don't recall gold and silver, but, uh, but maybe he does have some fine china or something like that somewhere. But, but large houses typically will have that reserve china or gold and silver vessels along with the everyday vessels, valuable vessels. And, and, and this is a picture of the church. A large house is going to have this mix, as it were. Spurgeon says the great house, it is a great house because it has been erected at a great cost, for God has given his only begotten Son to, that he might redeem himself a people to be his dwelling place. Now, the word for vessel could have a wide range of meanings. It can mean cup, dish, plate, a utensil, um, and it's actually used figuratively much in the New Testament. It's actually used specifically of teachers a few times. For example, <clears throat> in Acts 9.15, uh, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument, that's the word, a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. So that, we see that Paul is being called an instrument. Also, Paul in 2 Corinthians tells in the context of ministers of the new covenant that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's the same term that is used there. Now, he doesn't say earthen vessels, that he's a dishonorable vessel. He's using that in context of being a weak man. Gold and silver are used typically for the guest of honor. And the point is, is that the wood and the earthenware uh, vessels are inferior articles used for the common and basic use. Very plain, every day, uh, easily replaced. At our home, we inherited some china uh, almost 20 years ago when we were married and uh, from Grandma Susie. And so when Grandma Susie's china gets broken out, it is a special occasion. And maybe on Christmas or some other holiday, occasionally... Uh, my wife will just break out Grandma Susie's china when we're having guests over during the week just to make it extra special, guest of honor. And then we also have the Walmart plates that we use every other day of the week, right? And baked clay, good for nothing on for most of the time. Uh, <laughs> so we, we've got both. 
But so what does Paul mean here in this context for dishonor and honor, gold and silver and earthenware? Well, there's actually some debate about this. Is it like the tares and the wheat where there's, there's true believers and false believers that are within the church at any given time, um, and, and they're just going to grow up together as Jesus draws that illustration? There's some merit to that, but I think in context here, Paul is alluding to teachers, that there are some teachers that are dishonorable, some teachers that are false teachers, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who said that the resurrection had already taken place. And so the point here is that Paul is saying to young Timothy, as he writes to him, that Timothy, I know it's difficult pastoring the church there in Ephesus, and and it's a large church, and there's so many teachers coming in and coming out. And and don't be surprised if you have these vessels of dishonor that come through from time to time. George Knight, in his commentary, says, wood and earthenware vessels. The implication is that they may indeed be vessels like the false teachers in the professing Christian community, but their activity is indicates that they are dishonorable. So they may have the name that they're a teacher, but the content of what they teach reveals otherwise. What makes them dishonorable? Well, it's, in context, moral and doctrinal error. Moral failure, uncleanness, and doctrinal error. Uh, it contrasts, as we'll see, useful servants are, 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 are uh, profitable for the master's use and prepared for every work. So Timothy's not to be surprised about these vessels of honor and dishonor. And then in verse 21, uh, we need to be prepared for every good work, okay? And and what what Paul does here is he zooms in now in his metaphor from a house with all these vessels to one vessel. You get it? You follow the the big illustration, big house, lots of vessels, And he zooms in to one vessel of honor. That's what he's doing in verse 21. How can we be prepared for every good work? Well, he says in this verse, cleansing himself from these things. What are the these things in this verse? It's no doubt the corrupt teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus, teaching that would be contrary to the word. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, He will be a vessel of honor, cleanses himself from these things, a vessel of honor. This idea of cleaning out, uh, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. A pure life is needed in addition to pure doctrine. John MacArthur warns that sin is contagious, and being around open sin is shameful and defiling. That's why Paul writes that bad company corrupts good morals. You can't just be exposed yourself to wickedness and perversion and expect not to be expected, not to be affected, rather. Being around that which defiles also will begin to blunt your discernment. And Paul here, he says that if anyone cleanses himself, he will be a vessel of honor. You see, when we are saved and we are born again, the the Bible uses terminology that that we are washed in the blood of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists all these sins. And at the end, he says, such 
or some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. If you're in Christ, you have been washed, and that's good news. Well, what are some characteristics of this choice vessel? He gives three in verse 21 and the second part of the verse, and he says here that he will be sanctified, useful for the master, and prepared for every good work. What does he mean by sanctified? What he's talking about is that he's already been sanctified. He is sanctified. And that condition, it's a perfect passive, by the way. So it's something that God has done for him. And and it's in the perfect tense, which means there will be ongoing results that he is secure in that state. And so this vessel of honor is sanctified. It's set apart, okay? It's, it's, It's unique, it's set apart for God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Secondly, he says, be useful for the master. And the word useful means to be helpful, to be beneficial for the master. And the word he uses here for master is is despot. It only occurs 10 times, so it's, it's different than the normal word that occurs. And it's, it's the idea that we're not just related to God, but we belong to God. We are His. For example, it's used, O Lord, it is you who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea. You own it all. You are the master over it all. It literally means one who has legal control and authority over persons, like a slave owner. It's so useful for the master, the one who owns you, and then prepared for every good work. Prepared is the idea, ready and willing, ready and willing. You're you're the one that's ready to to do what what is expected of you, or or when there's a need, you're the one that's ready and willing to fill that need. In third world countries, when a dignitary or a president's going to come, what do they do? They actually do this in Zambia. They actually smooth out the roads. They they plow the roads from the normal, you know, know, all your organs are bouncing inside of you. They smooth them all out because the president's coming, and then, of course, you benefit from that. And so they get the roads ready and smooth. And are you ready to be used of God? We know in the next chapter, in a couple weeks, we'll be there. It says, all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here, we're prepared ready and willing. Here we've got the, the, the equipping that we need to be ready for every good work. That is the word of God because it is sufficient for all things. So this morning, are you an honorable vessel before God? Are you a clean vessel that has been sanctified? Or are you living in the pollution of your own sin? Have you been blinded by your own sin? Are you useful to the master, or are you just kind of off in a corner, kind of trying to hide out of the way? Well, let's move on. The Lord's servant, secondly, pursues righteousness, verse 22 and 23. Look at what Paul says again. 
Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who are called on the Lord from a pure heart. Here he rapid fires three commands in verses 22 and 23. It's a negative, a positive, and a negative. Okay, three rapid fire commands. And the first is flee, run, run away from youthful lusts. Paul does not just reiterate verse 21 of a vessel of honor that's sanctified, but now he broadens a perspective of what sanctification is and directs it towards Timothy himself. Now, previously, he had told Timothy in his first letter in 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Remember, we said he's probably in his mid-30s or so, maybe 37, uh, relatively young, speak, you know, speaking But young leaders have a temptation to gratify the flesh in many ways. And so he's told to flee these lusts and these desires. And it's not just sexual sin, which is often interpreted on 2 Timothy 2.22, but it's more broad than that. It's it's desires. The word that's used here in the original, it can actually be used favorably or unfavorably, but it's, it's a strong yearning for something. And I think it includes sins such as jealousy and ambition and wealth, as well as sexual sin and pride, and the list could go on. These types of things that we could be given to, he says, flee these youthful lusts. What types of things? Flee pleasure. Inordinate pleasure. The desire to be satisfied by something that is not rightfully yours. This would include sexual desire for something that is not yours. We are to find all of our sexual satisfaction in the context of marriage and with your spouse, and not outside of that, not in a magazine, not with someone else that's not your spouse, and not on a computer screen. Pornography is what I'm talking about. Flee that type of stuff. Run from it. Take a baseball bat to the monitor of your computer if you've got an ongoing, continual problem with that. It is destroying marriages. It is obliterating families. It is weakening our culture. Flee youthful lust, but also the pursuit of pleasure or addiction to entertainment or video games. And and it's just pleasure, 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 pleasure. And you live with no sobriety or sincerity of what God might have for your life. Physical appetites, inordinate craving for these things. Or what about power, pride, prestige, climbing the corporate ladder? I want to be, I'm looking out for numero uno, uno, and that's it. Diotrephes and Third John was spoken of of that, right? That he was concerned about himself and exalting himself. The striving and inordinate lust and craving for power will result in envy and strife. And then, of course, something else that needs to be mentioned in our day, as well as Timothy's day, is, is possessions, Longing after possessions, the bigger car, the bigger house, the more zeros in your bank account, and all of these types of things, an uncontrolled yearning 
a, a desire, a lusting for possessions and all the glory that goes along with them. If you find yourself in that last description of seeking after riches and all of that, you need to be warned. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich, those that have a desire to get rich, fall. Literally, in the original, it's trip. Like, okay? They fall into temptation. And a snare, a trap, with many foolish and harmful desires. And what's the effect? It says that it plunges men into ruin and destruction. You see, it's one thing to say, boy, it'd be nice to have a new car and have the new car smell again. You know, it's been 10 years since we've had a new car. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. But you know the difference between just normal upgrades so that you can function in life to a a, an inordinate lust and desire for these types of possessions and things and money. And Paul warns that it plunges men into ruin and destruction. Brothers and sisters, what does Paul say about these things? To flee from them. Literally, the word means to seek safety in flight. Run. Run from them. Don't be deceived. In fact, Satan is quite happy. It's the human heart's kind of like an amusement park, a ride in an amusement park. People get on, people get off. Well, to use that as sins, that Satan's quite content if you can conquer one sin and overcome it just to allow another sin into your life and not have that guarded and protected. We need to guard ourselves. Now, positively, and this is our second command right here in this uh, second part of verse 22, What does he say? Flee youthful lust and pursue. It's actually the word to run, to, to, uh, it's a word that can be used to persecute. It's to run forward, to pursue something, to diligently seek after. And Paul gives us five things. This is beautiful because it's like the Ephesians 4, right? The put off of bad things and behaviors and sins and put on good things, right? That's one of the ways that we grow spiritually. And so here he's saying, flee from those things, positively pursue righteousness. Not speaking so much of Christ-imputed righteousness for us, because that should already be there if we're sanctified, but doing what is right before God and man. Doing what you know is expected of you as a child of God. To have a reputation of good works, not trying to earn your way into heaven, but a reputation of good works. Secondly, pursue faith. Pursue faith. And what this means is not faith that you would believe. It's, um, that, that's another context, but this means faithful living, that you're recognized as a general overall faithful person. And, and Paul has six lists throughout his 13 letters of list of virtues. And, um, and so this is one of them in love, or rather faith and love are often listed in these. Third, pursue love. Love is not just love to God or love to man, but in general, love to God and man, saints and the lost. 
Love is the first of the fruits of the Spirit, where another one of Paul lists is listed. Love is not some mushy feeling uh, that we get, but it's, it's a true laying down our lives for somebody else. Uh, to put it another way, it's not an increased attractiveness. I'm so in love with my wife because she's so beautiful. It, it, it goes below the external, right? And looks at who the person is. It's, it's in a, love is, 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 is something that, that considers the other's welfare and needs. Love is a choice, not some mushy emotion. And then fourthly, he says, pursue peace. Irene, in the original, it's where we get the word serene from. It refers to something warm and, and calm and peaceful and, and, and those kinds of things. And it's speaking of this calm relationship with God and man. Pursue these things, Timothy. Flee from youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The fifth thing he's mentioning is a pure heart. Why do you think Solomon says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Spurgeon said, the pure in heart will see God. Others are but blind bats. And that's true. Just as it says in the Beatitudes, the pure in heart will see God. If you're not pure in heart, you're as blind as a bat. The psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? He goes on in Psalm 119, by keeping it according to your word. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor of about 200 years ago, and uh, was giving counsel to a young man that was about to enter the ministry and I had to cut this quote down, but this is what he told him. He told this man, remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. What good counsel to give someone entering the ministry, what good counsel for those of us in the ministry to be reminded of that that in great measure it's the purity of our own lives that, that God is pleased to use. And if that's not there, our ministries will be empty. Well, he brings up the negative again, negative, positive, negative in verse 23. In verse 23, he says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Refuse these things. And that's our our third command here. This is a call to discernment, brethren, to know when to engage in verbal conflict and when not to. Okay? Because it's not that sometimes we must speak up and defend the truth. We have an obligation to speak up and defend the truth. If you hear the name of Jesus being blasphemed and, and someone saying, oh, he's not the second person of the Holy Trinity, he's not God, let me, to Jesus was just a good teacher, you have a responsibility to speak up. No, he's my savior. He died on the cross. There is a Trinity and he is the God man. You have a responsibility to speak up. So often today, 
If you look up in verse 16 that I read earlier, of so much today is this worldly and empty chatter. It's just chatter. It's just noise. It's not about anything of substance. Verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth. Well, what does Paul say in verse 23? To refuse speculations. Speculations is a word that means a matter of dispute, controversy. So a controversy. He says refuse controversies. Not all controversy. He gives us two adjectives to tell us which kind we're to refuse. Okay, and what does it say? Foolish and ignorant. Foolish is the Greek word morose, where we get moron, so stupid controversies, you could practically say. And then ignorant is uneducated. And so, you know, speaking without being educated about something, we are to refuse those types of controversies. These are the matters that have little significance, brethren. They don't deserve our time. Senseless wrangling over words will divide the people of God. David Platt, probably the first time I've ever quoted him, uh, don't agree with everything he says, but I thought this quote was good. He says this, of course, pastors and teachers must not avoid all controversy. In fact, they cannot escape it if they're teaching what the Bible says. Everything a faithful teacher presents is by its nature controversial. These controversies refer to the things that do not deserve our time and energy. Senseless arguments only breed division and quarreling. Faithful teachers must be devoted to preaching revelation, not debating man's speculations. And so what does Paul say here? He says, refuse, reject foolish and ignorant speculations. Why? Well, he tells us right here in the rest of the verse, knowing that they produce quarrels. The word for produce is actually to begat, that it will actually begat more and more quarrels, that all these senseless controversies will actually beget children, which are quarrel upon quarrel upon quarrel. And so we need to be careful even what we allow in our minds. Brothers and sisters, our minds are to be sanctified to be protected as far as what we allow into it. They're not meant to be garbage dumps. And so we need to guard what we allow into our mind. The human brain, it's estimated, has 100 billion cells. One brain, that's half the stars in the Milky Way. Many of these have to do with memory. Think of RAM and your computer, random access memory. Much of our brain is, is meant for memory. And so if you're allowing foolish things to come in and, and those things which defile, it will affect how you live. You need to be careful about we, what we allow into the brain. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4, Finally, brethren, whatever is true and honorable and right, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's excellence in anything worthy of praise, what? Dwell on these things. That's what we're to fill our mind with. That's what we're to occupy our minds with. Well, first we saw as the Lord's servant, we're to be at what? Honorable vessel, fit for the master's use. Secondly, are you pursuing purity? And now lastly, the Lord's servant is to be gentle in his teaching and correction. 
And look what he says in verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Now, hasn't he beat this drum enough? I mean, in verse 14, to not wrangle over words. Verse 16, avoid a worldly and empty chatter uh, that leads to further ungodliness. Uh, just in the previous verse, foolish and ignorant speculations, quarrels, and now he says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. I get the idea that Paul's trying to drive home a point. And that we probably need to listen and get the wax out of our ears and understand what Paul is saying. And it's very, very emphatic the way he words this in the original. And it's, it must not be quarrelsome. It's very, very emphatic. Quarrelsome is to literally engage in combat and fight. It's the word that's used in Acts 7 last week in our scripture reading when Moses struck the Egyptian. Uh, that's to fight. But figuratively, of course, it's used to engage in heated dispute without the use of weapons to fight, quarrel, and dispute. I'll read one other place where it occurs is in James. He uses the word, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you do not attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you ask not. John Engel, James, a wonderful writer in a multitude of subjects from female piety to the call to the ministry and an earnest ministry, said this in his book on Christian love. Christian love would soften the harshness and remove the bitterness of controversy. We are not enemies to well-conducted controversy. As long as the truth is attacked, it must be defended. As long as error exists, it must be assailed. Not an iota of God's word must be surrendered to error or infidelity. We must contend earnestly for the faith once and all delivered. So, again, I I put that quote there because we're not to be quarrelsome, but we are to stand up for the truth and to not back down. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, let's look at the qualifications of a servant of God. And this is 24b to the end here, and we're just going to consider this. He must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. This is a beautiful thing. First of all, he uses the word, the Lord's bondservant, referring to Timothy for the first time. Paul always calls himself a bondservant, a slave for Christ. He's using it to Timothy and other gospel workers here. Many of what he lists here in this section parallels the qualifications for elder and pastor in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and Titus 1, 5-9. And so there's lots of parallels here. He says that, first of all, you must be kind to all, gentle. Um, We read from 1 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother to her children. That Paul's drawing an analogy there of the tenderness that he had. Secondly, able to teach. And isn't that parallel? 1 Timothy 3, 2. The ability to convey spiritual truth. The idea of being gentle and kind as it goes with 1 Timothy 3, 3. Not pugnacious but gentle. And then, as we talked about earlier, this phrase, patient when wrong. This, it's one Greek word. It occurs only here. 
It literally is bearing evil without resentment. Perhaps one of the hardest requirements of the servant of God. We must resist the old nature when we are wronged and not get offended. And far too many are easily offended and want to fight and want to quarrel rather than being patient when wronged, thinking the best. Paul writes in the beautiful love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep a record of wrongs. And if you do keep a record of wrongs in the context of the Christian ministry, in the context of a marriage, in a context of parenting a teenager, you know what will happen? Bitterness will set in, and bitterness, when that root grows, it will be so hard to remove. I liken it to a backpack of rocks. Every time you're bitter and you, you stew about something, you're throwing another rock in your backpack, and pretty soon you're weighed down with these things. Keep short accounts. Don't be weighed down. Thomas Manton says, Cheerful patience is a holy art and skill which a man learns from God. Second, or First Peter chapter 2, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who what? Committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but what? kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Verse 25, be, the Lord's bondservant was, must be able to correct leading to repentance. Verse 25, correcting those in opposition. Again, Titus 1.9, an elder qualification. Holding fast to the faithful word, which in accordance with the teaching so that you will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And here, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, what does the word correcting mean? It means literally schooling those who are in opposition to assist in the development of the person's ability to make appropriate choices. It's used in Titus, for example, where it talks about um, Christ has come, and it's instructing us to deny ungodliness. Well, Titus 2.12, the instructing there, it's, it's, it's correcting, it's training, discipline would all be parallels to that word. And what's the goal here? Gently, or, or with gentleness, correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance and restoration of the hearers is the goal. It's, it's not to win the argument or to win the debate on particular doctrine or whatever, but it's that when we do engage in, in this and we have to speak the truth in love, the goal is restoration and repentance. What is repentance? It's a, it's a change of mind, an inward change of mind and affections and convictions and, and commitments United with the fear of God and faith in Christ that will result in a changed life. And it's a gift of God. It says it right here, right? That if perhaps God may grant them. So subjunctive, it's if perhaps with the possibility of it not happening, but that it's very possible that God may grant them repentance. Romans 2, 4, or do you, presume that the, on the, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God 
leads us to repentance. And then verse 26, and they may come to their senses having escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. This has the idea of this coming to their senses is actually becoming sober again. It doesn't, it's not talking about intoxication, but, but spiritual intoxication. It's Satan makes people drunk with the lies of the world, and the servant's task is to sober them up, as it were, with the truth and to rescue them, that they may come to their senses, that their eyes may be opened to the truth, that their spiritual senses would become restored as they receive, what? The knowledge of truth, having been held captive to do his will. Well, thus ends this remarkable section that Paul has given us of the Lord's servant and how he should conduct himself to be a chosen choice vessel fit for the master's use, to be a pure vessel, and to be one that is gentle in correction. Well, what application can we draw? Well, these are weighty admonitions, I readily admit, in this section, very challenging, very weighty for us to consider. Do you desire this morning to be a vessel that's fit for the master's use? Do you desire to be used of God? Or are you just getting what you can out of Christianity to help you along or whatever? Or are you a slave for Christ? Are you a bond servant for the Lord? Are you growing in your sanctification and your holiness? And, and one of the ways that you, that's an indication of growth is that you see more and more sin in your life and you hate it. And you want to mortify that. And you want to put that to death. It's not that, oh, I'm a, it's not this, this foolish perfectionism belief that somehow we attain a second plateau in this life. That's rubbish. You're going to have to wrestle with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 if you believe such a thing. He's calling himself the chief of sinners and a wretched man. Brothers and sisters, when you pass from this life, do you want to hear the first words as you, as it were, you would approach heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in into the joy of your master. I want to hear those words. I want to hear those words. I want to be a faithful servant of his. Far too many are content to just do the bare minimum. What do I have to do to pass this class? Okay, a a low C will pass. Okay, that's all I'm going to do. Or or in life or in college or in your job or, or whatever. Far too many just want just enough to pass rather than seeking to excel. And especially in this context for God's glory. Well, brothers and sisters, I realize that in reality, despite our best efforts to be pure bondservants, we fail. We have to cry with the Apostle Paul in another context, who is sufficient for these things? We have to understand that, that in our own strength, we are powerless to do this. And that's why we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we look to the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Lord's bondservant, as it were, and was without sin. 
Jesus is the perfect, unashamed workman. Every time he spoke, it was the very word of God. It was pure. It was untainted. Jesus is the ultimate honorable vessel, even as he was the one that would be nailed to a rugged cross to die as a substitute for sinners, accomplishing that substitutionary death for every one of us. And lastly, Jesus exemplifies the gentleness that we as bondservants are called to display. Was it not he on the cross as he's nailed there in his agony, gasping for air that says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Was it not he that is is told in the prophecy of Isaiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. And those of you who are outside of Christ, who are not Christians, you understand your need of Christ today, that you can't be saved apart from Jesus Christ and his saving power. It is he who said in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. But come on God's terms. Don't come in the the rags of your own self-righteousness. Tear off your self-righteousness and come crying. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Confessing your sin before Jesus. And he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sustaining the week one preaching and subduing the cough. Lord, we thank you for your truth. May it reach deep down within us. May it be planted there. Lord, may we examine our lives to be those that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.